This series contains adult language and descriptions of graphic violence throughout. Listener discretion is advised. Cavalry Audio. From the Upper West Side of Manhattan, over the George Washington Bridge and into northern New Jersey, it's a pretty straight shot along Route 80, about 35 miles, to get to the exit for Jefferson Township. You need to get off on Route 15 for a few miles to get to the exit for Berkshire Valley Road, and then all of a sudden, you're swallowed by the forest. It's springtime in the Northeast, and despite the constant shadow of a global pandemic and a political season that exposed enormous fault lines in the fabric of our society, it's impossible to ignore the simple and stunning beauty of this landscape. Spring seems to have bloomed overnight, and the forest, indeed, seems endless dominated by the rich, verdant green of the trees and the soft blue of the April sky. Today I'm approaching Jefferson from the south, intentionally. If I had taken the northern approach, getting off Route 80 earlier onto Route 287 and taking that to the Hamburg Turnpike, well, that would take me right past Clinton Road, and I don't want to do that, not yet. For now, I want to enjoy the scenic beauty of this valley and try to understand what happened here more than three decades ago. Not unlike Clinton Road, Berkshire Valley Road is a long, desolate strip of asphalt and concrete that cuts through a forest, parallels a stream, and connects an isolated pocket of civilization with the larger outside world. This drive serves as a not-so-gentle reminder of the isolated nature of this community. And to be honest, sometimes it's a little unsettling. A few miles before the center of town, I turn left onto Dover Milton Road and find myself driving through a neighborhood of tidy homes with nice lawns. And off to the right through the trees, I catch occasional glimpses of Lake Swannanoa, a Ringling Brothers creation from more than 100 years ago. Dover Milton Road ends at Milton Road, and there, on the left, perched atop a small rise on the banks of a rushing creek, sits the ancient and solemn Riker Public Library, now the town museum. A left onto Milton Road, and a hundred yards later, a right takes me onto Schoolhouse Road, where I grew up. It's a nice two-mile stretch of single-family homes with yards and swimming pools and woods. I pass the imposing and stoic one-room schoolhouse from which the road gets its name, built before the turn of the century, now used as a storage facility for Milton Elementary School that takes up the bigger parcel of land that it sits on. I come to a traffic signal, not a stoplight, just a blinking light at the corner of Schoolhouse and Ridge Road, and I turn right. Less than a quarter mile, I slow down to turn into the neighborhood called White Rock. And it isn't long before I come to a stop in front of a gray, one-story home with a sloping front lawn and a Toyota in the driveway. This is where it happened. This is the quiet, peaceful home that was visited by unspeakable evil on a snowy night in January of 1988. And unfortunately, that wasn't the end of the story for this town, for this street, or even for this house. From Cavalry Audio, I'm Brandon Morgan, and this is The Devil Within. Down. 
This is a special bonus episode, A Prayer in Spring. The house across the street is no longer occupied by the Eastman family, although they stayed local to the area. And just down the block, what used to be the Kennedy home has long since changed hands, although the oldest of the siblings, Bobby, lives just a few blocks further into White Rock in a house he bought with his wife in the early 90s, the house he raised his children in, in the community he's known and loved his entire life. White Rock Boulevard borders White Rock Lake. It's in the shape of a horseshoe, and before I know it, I'm back at Ridge Road. A right turn takes me into the center of town. One stoplight, a gas station, a bar, a bank, and two strip malls with a pizza place. It's almost lunchtime, so I pull in. I know I'm stalling, but I've also learned to never pass up a slice of pizza here. 30 minutes later, and I'm back on the road, Berkshire Valley Road to be exact and I'm heading north out of Jefferson, heading for the Hamburg Turnpike, known locally as Route 23. Ten more minutes of drive time on this scenic backcountry road, and I'm at the intersection of Berkshire Valley Road and Route 23. While not a major thoroughfare by any means, Route 23 is a highly trafficked artery through northern New Jersey, and it shows. As I wait at the stoplight, there is a steady stream of cars taking up two lanes in both directions. The light turns green, I take a right, and almost immediately I see the exit I'm looking for. Clinton Road. Ever since I listened to the interview with Mayor Eric Wilsusen, I haven't been able to shake one particular exchange, one part of the story, and it's this. The mayor said point blank that representatives of the Catholic Church were convinced that the Tommy Sullivan murder-suicide was a case of demonic possession that local law enforcement was instructed to maintain a strict armed perimeter during Tommy's funeral for fear that an effort would be made by Satanists to reclaim Tommy's body, by force if necessary, and that he had personally inspected Tommy's sketchbook and saw the terrifying shift from boyish scribblings to frightening depictions of demons. Now I'm fully aware that evil exists in the world. I'm also aware that evil can take many forms, and I'm willing to admit, I believe that there is much about the nature of evil that lies beyond the scope of human understanding. Do I believe that demonic possession in the purely Catholic sense is possible? The best answer I can give is that the truth must lie beyond my understanding, because there are some things that I simply cannot answer. But here's what I do know. I know that 10 years after that terrible night in January of 1988, Tommy's little brother took his own life. It's impossible to know why, or if there was any connection to the awful events from his childhood, but it seems that evil and darkness and tragedy wouldn't allow the family any lasting peace. I know that Betty Ann Sullivan, Tommy's mother and victim of his rage, has a sister who, in the aftermath of the murder, petitioned the court to examine the police files in an attempt to better understand what happened to her beloved sister and to perhaps get a glimpse into the clouded, broken mind of her young nephew to better understand what happened to him and hopefully get some answers. She was granted access, unfortunately. And what she saw in the file, the photos, the forensic accounts of the crime scenes, statements from the civilians and first responders, basically everything she was looking for, had an effect that must have been shocking. For soon after, she chose to turn her back on society at large and became a cloistered nun at a convent somewhere in the Northeast. What did she see? 
What did she learn? Whatever it was, she felt that her best option was to immerse herself in a personal relationship with Christ and little else. I also know that within six months of losing his wife and oldest son, Tommy Sullivan Sr. was remarried in Florida. Now, many locals saw that as an indictment of the man. But one lesson the years have taught me is that people indeed grieve in many different ways. As a husband and father, I can only imagine that any distraction that would grant a reprieve from what must have been unimaginable anguish would be welcomed. I would bet that for a man going through that hell, public opinion from a small town in New Jersey was the last thing on his mind. And finally, I know that towards the end of the series, we veered away from an attempt to stick to established facts and first-hand accounts, as factual as 30-year-old recollections can be, and opted instead to offer a definitive ending to the story, fantastic though it may seem. The convergence of myth and reality has long been pondered and explored, yet rarely, if ever, has it landed on solid footing. That doesn't mean it isn't true. It just means it hasn't been proven. Yet. It's often said that extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. And I would submit that, in a way, the Tommy Sullivan case meets that burden. Not for what evidence exists, but for what evidence doesn't exist. I find it extraordinary that a young boy could inflict such damage to himself, defying the limits of human endurance and physicality, circumstances that no medical examiner, coroner, or EMT could explain, not to this day. That question remains more than 30 years later. My feeling is that there is one person who knows the answer, and it is hopelessly debated in prayerful whispers, safe behind the austere stone walls of a convent from a grieving nun, desperate to understand how it all fits into God's plan. Forgive the redundancy, but it is simply a perfect spring day as I cross Route 23 onto Clinton Road. The civilization that I had so recently enjoyed moments ago suddenly vanishes as I round the first bend and am enveloped by Parkland to my left and unincorporated West Milford Township on my right, and nothing but asphalt for the next 10 miles. But it's not spooky or scary or unsettling. It's beautiful. In fact, if I lived here year-round, I would be one of those people that come here all the time to go hiking and mountain biking. It's almost a paradise. To find the grounds of Cross Castle, I had entered Hank's Pond into my Google Maps. And after only a few minutes of driving, I'm instructed to turn right. But where? There isn't really a road. But then I see it. A nearly unmarked trail, barely wide enough for a car. I wasn't sure if this was actually the place until I saw a crude, no-parking sign nailed to a tree. That told me that people park here often enough that someone felt the need to put up a sign. I figured I'd risk the parking ticket, and I pulled over. It was a crisp, refreshing walk to the banks of the small pond, and upon my arrival, I was struck again by those visions of Robert Frost. Yes, he wrote almost exclusively of the woods of New England, but had he spent time in North Jersey, I think he would have found it to his liking. My first thought as I looked around was that I wish I had been here when Cross Castle still stood. How majestic it must have been before the forest reclaimed the land. Beautiful lawns and landscaped grounds, boats in the pond, and the castle. The stone castle that was built with such care only to come to such grief. 
the last vestiges of its great walls reduced to rubble more than three decades ago. Sadly, all that's left are the enormous foundations, masterfully built from local rock hewn from nearby outcroppings. And even though the foundations are all that remains, it's easy to understand the grand scale of the main house. The basements are truly massive, dug at least 15 feet into the ground with cornerstones the size of a desk, but really not much else. I sit on a large rock, shaped by a master mason over a hundred years ago, and take in the surroundings. For all the beauty, for all the past evil that was visited on this place, for all the alleged ritualistic ceremonies, for the supposed connection to the paranormal, what I'm struck by the most is an almost overwhelming feeling of loneliness. It hasn't been often in my life that I can say that I've been entirely alone, not a soul for miles in all directions. Before I get too freaked out, I can remind myself that I can be in my hotel room in midtown Manhattan in less than an hour, and that creeping anxiety is replaced with, once again, a deep contemplation of the nature of evil. Seneca, the great Stoic philosopher, once wrote that the fates will lead you to your destiny or drag you to it. Was Tommy's collision course with evil destined to occur? Has evil always existed and the great religions of the world came to power as a necessary foil to maintain balance? Or is it more personal, more quiet? I'm not sure what I was expecting to experience on Clinton Road. Maybe a feeling of impending doom or a cold wind on a warm day. I know it's cliche, but I was expecting some kind of foreboding darkness to come over me, some kind of sign that evil lived in those woods since the beginning of time and would remain long after we're gone. But I didn't feel that. Not there anyway. So we moved into a new house about three months ago now, and one of the big purchases that we made was a new mattress. Figured new house, we'd been sleeping on the old mattress for a long time, let's treat ourselves, get a new mattress. And then I thought, why are we going to spend all this money on a mattress and put the same old lousy sheets on it? And that's how we found Bolin Branch. We ordered the Bolin Branch Signature Hemmed Sheet Set. Yes, they're insanely comfortable. Yes, they get softer with every wash. Yes, the craftsmanship that goes into the sheets is obvious. But you get them at a fair price. And you know what else is really great about Bolin Branch? Is that you could also feel good about your purchase. The company was founded in 2014 by husband and wife, Scott and Missy Tannen. And it came down to them doing what's right according to their high moral standards because the sheets are made to a higher standard. It's a toxin-free process and fair trade certification to ensure that their workers are paid fair living wages. To experience the best sheets you've ever felt, choose Boland Branch. You can try them worry-free for 30 nights with free shipping and returns. And my listeners get an exclusive 15% off your first set of sheets with promo code WITHIN at bowlandbranch.com. That's bowl and branch, B-O-L-L and branch.com. Promo code within. Okay, I don't know how many cat owners are listening, but if you're a cat owner, you know the following to be absolutely true. Cats are super curious and not super trusting. If you move a chair anywhere in the house, it's instantly something new that needs to be sniffed for 10 minutes and investigated until finally it's deemed safe and then they can sleep on it. So when I switched to a new brand of kitty litter, uh, I was a little concerned. Would they take to it right away? Would there be some problems? 
turns out I didn't have to worry at all. Pretty Litter truly is kitty litter reinvented. It's not anything like traditional kitty litter. Pretty Litter is comprised of super light crystals that trap odor and release moisture. And the result is a dry, low-maintenance litter that doesn't smell. The house smells different when I come in because there's no more kitty litter smell. You scoop the poop and you leave the rest. That's it. Get the world's smartest litter without leaving home by visiting prettylitter.com and use the promo code within for 20% off your first order. That's prettylitter.com, promo code within for 20% off. prettylitter.com, promo code within. As I drove away back down Clinton Road toward civilization, I could easily have turned left on Route 23 and been back in the city for dinner. But I didn't. I got back on Berkshire Valley Road, back into the center of town, turned up Ridge Road, and then left into White Rock. I stopped again in front of the house where Tommy used to live. And that's where I felt it. The darkness, the impending doom. You see, I had planned to knock on the door and introduce myself to the current owners of the house. I was going to let them know about the story I'd been investigating, for surely they knew all about the history of their house, and with a little luck, they'd allow me to take a quick walk through the place almost like visiting a holy site to pay my respects. But my reason for stalling, for staying in the car, was simple. While it's true that Jefferson is an extremely tight-knit community where neighbors take care of neighbors and you can count on a certain level of security, it's also a place where secrets can be kept. A place where you can find the space to be left alone, whether it be out of shame or guilt or sorrow. Just a few days prior to my visit to Jefferson, I learned through a local source that way back in the early months of 1988, just after the tragedy, the Sullivan home was sold off to a new young family. By all accounts, they were friendly and hardworking, focused on family and building a life in their new community. Years passed. Children grew up and left the nest. The world changed, sometimes slowly, like with the rise of the digital age, sometimes quickly like that fateful morning of September 11th, 2001. But still, Jefferson remained. White Rock remained. The one-story house with the sloping front lawn and woods in the back remained. It's the people that leave. Not all, of course. Some stay and find happiness. Some leave. Some die. What I had just recently learned was that, for reasons unknown, more than a decade ago, The grown daughter of the family that moved into the Sullivan home came home to visit, went into the basement, and committed suicide. The fact that I spent months talking to people about the Tommy Sullivan case, and this never came up, speaks volumes about the willingness of the community to protect their own and to honor their fallen. So all we really know is that within the span of a single generation, two families that lived in that house were damaged beyond repair by events that can't be explained. Either because the answers exist outside the realm of human knowledge, or sadly, because they were taken to the grave in a solitary act of despair that underscores the frailty of the human condition. Was Tommy Sullivan just an angry kid that snapped? Was there someone else in those woods that mutilated Tommy and was able to completely erase all traces of their presence that night? Or was there something otherworldly at play? It bears mentioning that among the most guarded and off-limits documents in the Vatican archives is a spell book dating back more than a thousand years. 
a book that supposedly gives specific instructions on how to summon demons into the human plane of existence. Curiously not under lock and key is the official methods for exercising these demons. The Ritual Romanum, a kind of handbook for all Catholic rituals, which has existed since at least the 16th century. The Church's involvement and offer of assistance in the immediate aftermath of the Sullivan case, coupled with the warnings given to law enforcement, lead me to believe that at least they believed it to be attributable to the supernatural. And that, naturally, leads to a host of further questions. But for now, I need to be content to live in those questions, while remaining steadfast in my search for answers. As I drive out of Jefferson Township, despite the sorrow and horror that fueled my reasons for visiting, I'm reminded of the simple fact that this town has weathered terrible tragedy and has endured, and it will continue to do so. I roll my window down and experience the breeze that carries the promise of summer, delivered yet again as a reminder of the cyclical nature of the universe and the chance to start over again with each rebirth. Yes, spring has arrived, and this community wears those colors well. For Cavalry Audio, I'm Brandon Morgan. Coming up on the final episode of Season 1 of The Devil Within. This is Jeff Apple from Cavalry Audio. During the production of The Devil Within, we conducted several interviews to help give color and context to the tragic story of Tommy Sullivan, including one interview that we've saved until now. I sat down with the writer-director of The Devil Within, Brandon Morgan, to get his personal insight on the story, the genesis of the podcast, and his thoughts on the ordeal more than 30 years later. Jefferson Township is Brandon's hometown. He was 15 years old that night in January. He saw firsthand the fallout from those tragic events, events that stayed with him and were still clear in his mind after three decades when he finally decided to tell the story. Hey, Brandon, great to catch up with you again. You too, thanks. So the show focus. Go tell that preacher. Go and tell that The Devil Within is a Cavalry Audio production, written and directed by Brandon Morgan. Original score by Monkey Mind Music Group. Original music by Bruce Whitkin. Executive produced by Keegan Rosenberger and Dana Brunetti. For Cavalry Audio, I'm Brandon Morgan. the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. 
With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.